Hi everyone, welcome to the Idiots Podcast, that's Infectious Disease Insight of two specialists. I'm Jamie, that's Callum, we're going to tell you everything you need to know about infectious disease. Soon may the added team come to discontinue the Tezo sun. One day when the CRP's done, we'll take our leave and go. Callum. James. You remember that time that you got high and mushrooms broke into Wimbledon and urinated all over the net? I meant to say yes. Yes. Um, yes. Very clearly. Yeah. It was very odd. And, you know, when the, the police officer found uh, you, he said to you, Callum, you're in P net trance. And that reminds me, Callum, of uh, today's episode, because uh, we're going to be talking oh, wait, about wait, wait. I didn't urine penetrance. I don't understand that, Joe. <laughs> what? You're in net. P net trance. Trance. P net trance. Oh, I get it. Okay, I got it. I got it. And that reminds me, Callum, because uh, today's episode is about urine uh, penetrance of uh, antimicrobials, is it not? I, <laughs> that was quite a complicated pun. And like, how, when did you think that up? And how long had that been on your mind? Like half a minute before the episode started. Half a minute. Wow. That's the skills that you can get only here. Or probably a lot on the of on the Idiots podcast, the United Kingdom's premier infectious disease podcast. Don't look into that stat too closely. So anyway, uh, we're going to be talking about urine drug penetrance, and we've we've kind of held this back, haven't we? We've done urinalysis paralysis, we've done urine culture, we've done county, we we've done we've done everything but talk about in depth. I think only a pharmacologist would say that we've held it back. As if you want to talk about the antibiotics before you've made the diagnosis. We're like, well, I don't care what the diagnosis is. Did you know <laughs> about <laughs> pivmicillinam? Oh, but do you know about pivmicillinam, Callum? No, no, oh. Let's make the diagnosis first. I think this is right, this is right. where it should be in in our urine series. All right, all right, all right. Fine. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, the easiest thing in the world. I mean, re- really, when you're talking about particularly when you're in early years, uh, you know, trainee or, or, or pharmacist or, you know, microbiologist, you, you should just follow whatever your local guidance says to do or what the NICE guidance says to do. You know, like they've chosen their, their recommendations with some care, uh, usually. Uh, but we're going to go a little bit beyond that and talk about the all available options, including what to use when your back is to the wall. And kind of work work forward from that um it's funny when you when you get to a certain level you <laughs> i think you know you sort of think like just follow the guideline guidelines are amazing and two things come to mind <laughs> now it, one is that i was reading a guidance recently because someone phoned me about something i didn't know what to do and i so i looked at the guidance and the guidance said consult a microbiologist and i was like no no, no, I don't know. I I can't consult myself. And and then the other thing is that guidelines are, you know, useful and particularly for those common problems. But they they were always have issues. Not everything will sit neatly into a guideline, and it's just an accumulation of the evidence. So sometimes new evidence comes along and it's not included in your guideline, and maybe your practice should change before the guideline gets updated. Um, or maybe 
you, you know, in your local setting, the interpretation of the evidence is going to be different um, because you've got different epidemiology or whatnot. So guidelines aren't yeah. everything, I guess is my point. Well, and, and the more senior you get, the more you you sort of have to treat them as a, you know, something for the juniors rather than something that you yourself need to mm-hmm. to follow. You, the big point of that is I think you, if unless you've got a good reason not to, you should follow the guidance because... Well, yes, absolutely. Yeah. But you're, you're earning your money uh, because when the guidelines don't suit the patient, that's a good line to have in your back pocket, you you're taking the responsibility for deviating from that. Yeah. Yeah. That's do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, but in order to do that, you need to have a, a fairly, you know, when we're talking about urinary tract infections, you know, be it a basic lower UTI, an upper UTI, a catheter associated UTI, any other UTI variant that you care to think of, you need to have a good appreciation of the pharmacology of the antimicrobials that you're going to be using, what's suitable for what and what is not suitable. Okay. And so that's kind of what this episode is all about. Can I kind of just look at the sensitivity report on the on the on the culture, James, and that'll just tell me exactly what to use. I just I'll just jump and just say release the culture result, and we'll say moxicillin, and we'll just use that. Yes, absolutely, Cam. You use nitrofurantoin for as many pyelonephritis uh, cases as you like. <laughs> that's a nerve um so <laughs> moving on from that so what what drug antibiotics uh, what antibiotics can we use what are, what are the options what are the range of things that might be used for urinary tract infections well when i um i, I taught a load of urology registrars about this um uh, a few months ago now and i divided it into beta lactams and everything else and so we'll, let's talk about the beta lactams first. First, you've got your uh, your penicillins, you've got your uh, amoxicillin, your comoxiclav, your piperacillin, tazobactam, and then you've got your your kind of slightly odder ones like your pifmacillin and temacillin, and we've covered them in the in the weird lactams uh, episode. And then for your cephalosporins, we've got cefazolin and cephalexin, your first generations. You can use kefiroxime as well. That's the second gen, but usually people just jump to the third generation, really, uh, and use keftraxel. If you need antipseudomonal cover, you might use keftazidine. Um, this is a very UK-centric approach, by the way. I know that kefalosporins are much more widely used, and lots of different ones are used in other uh, countries. Um, but the, these are the ones that are very commonly used in the UK. And then you've got your carbapenems, your ertapenem, your meropenem, um, both are very broad spectrum. Ertapenem doesn't cover pseudomonas and meropenem does. And then lastly, you've got your monobactam. So Astrianam is the only commercially available monobactam. And it is uh, also covered in the weird lactams episode. And it has pseudomonal and gram-negative cover, but doesn't really cover anything else. And then moving on into your kind of anti-DNA, anti-folate kind of class, you've got your quinolones. And so that would be Cipro, Levo, and Moxifloxacin. And as a brief reminder of the spectrum, Cipro covers Staph Pseudomonas and Gram-negative. Levo covers uh, Pseudomonas and Gram-negative. And I think it covers Staph as well. And then Moxie covers gram-negative and Staph aureus, but does not cover Pseudomonas, but does cover anaerobes, which 
um, makes it useful in different circumstances. And then for your antifolates, so things that interfere with folic acid metabolism, which is uh, kind of used to create DNA uh, purines, I think it is, uh, that would be your trimethoprim, your sulfamethoxazole, and they are combined together in the drug cultrimoxazole, uh, also called trimsulfa in other parts of the world. And then in terms of protein synthesis agents, you've, you've really just got one class that's in common use, um, but we'll talk about others later. But the aminoglycosides, so that's your gentamicin, tobramycin, and amicacin, and uh, then lastly, you've got sort of stuff that doesn't fall into those other categories. So that's phosphomycin and nitrofurantoin. So at least in the UK, that's a sort of run through of the kind of drugs that you could use for, for UTIs. So obviously very dominated by the um, beta-lactams and the uh, DNA and antifolate agents there. Yeah. And what maybe this will come up later on, but we, we talk about beta-lactams or beta-lactams, is that applying urinary tract infections? I think that, you know, when we talk about beta-lactams or beta-lactams, we're really talking about a desire to restrict beta-lactam use for the most serious infections. And depending on the UTI, that may not necessarily apply. Mm. Um, the, the good thing about all the drugs that we're about to talk about is that basically they all get heavily concentrated in the urine. Because he, here's the advantage of, 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 of kind of drugs, uh, antibiotics. Most of them are excreted urinarily. There are some exceptions, but most of them are getting eliminated uh, through the urinary uh, tract. And that means that you get really, really high levels in the urinary tract, even if you don't necessarily get particularly high plasma uh, levels. And as we'll uh, come on to, getting high plasma levels is kind of important for pyelonephritis when you've got renal parenchymal involvement, but not necessarily for lower UTIs, as in below the, the VUJ, where you're going to be getting... The spell the, what VUJ is for us? A vesicouretic junction. So that's the junction that goes between the ureter and the, and the bladder. So that is the, the kind of crossover point. If you've got an infection above the VUJ, as in, in the ureter and the kidneys, then that's an upper UTI or pyelonephritis. And if it's below the VUJ, then that's a lower UTI or a cystitis or urethritis or prostatitis, what have you. Um, so uh, because the, 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 the renal parenchymal levels of antibiotic basically mimic plasma, uh, so if you've got something that has high plasma levels then or sufficient uh, levels above the MIC in plasma that they will be effective, then you can use that for, for an upper UTI, whereas that's uh, not the case for all antibiotics. So for an example, tetracyclines don't really get high levels in uh, Cmax and plasma is not particularly high, and so they may not be the best you know, option. Uh, whereas, say, you know, beta-latams uh, or quinolones or even, you know, stuff like gentamicin, they'll get high enough, uh, you know, above their, their MIC that you'll be able to use them and they'll be considered effective treatments. Hmm. Calm, have you seen the um, best antibiotic chart in the world? I'll try and include a link to it in the in the show notes. I'll send Is this you the Brad Spellberg website? 
No, 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 it's not. It's it's unrelated. But basically somebody got every antibiotic on the, the sort of y-axis and uh most pathogens on the on the x-axis. And they, they sort of created like a heat map of, of what was sensitive and what was resistant oh, okay. uh, to it. It's a bit like what I've got in the show notes here, but I've I've restricted it and I've sort of UKized it. So it was very American. So their uh, you know, their MRSA was resistant to lots of stuff that we would consider our MRSA to be sensitive to. And so I sort of um, changed it uh, for that reason. But I, I've sort of included a kind of a heat map uh, in the show notes here that we'll we'll include. And there, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, a color chart based on the traffic light system. So, you know, green is almost always sensitive. Red is almost always resistant. And, and orange is, it depends. And so I've included a link for all the antimicrobials that we've mentioned there and a few others as well. So there's... Um, I, I included a column for Enterococcus, and so I've, you know, included uh, things like linezolid and, and glycopeptides, that's vancomycin, tycoplanin, um, because they are viable options for Enterococcus, um, but not for everything else, because almost everything else is yeah. is, is gram-negative. So, so do you want to talk me through this? Because there's, there's a couple of things on here that I'm reading, and I'm like, hmm, what does he mean by that? Or... Um, so yeah, go ahead. You pick about Cam, and then we'll yeah. Uh, and I wonder we'll if it's, it. is it easier to talk about it by organism? Yeah, go for it. So you know, public enemy or pubic enemy number one. I guess it doesn't really part out, does it? <laughs> um, no, no, no. That's good stuff, Callum. That's the best pun you've ever made. Oh no. Editing, uh, Callum. Do not delete that. That is absolute gold. Great work, Callum. Great work all day. It is E. coli. And essentially in your chart, you've basically put everything as green apart from the ones that we're just saying for enterococci. Yeah, I, true. I, I mean, this is for wild type. Yeah. So obviously there are differences and you, your mileage may vary, but basically everything covers E. coli because... If when we say wild type, it mean, e. means an organism that doesn't have any acquired resistance um, mechanisms, basically. Yeah, I'm not sure you need to explain wild type, but go ahead. I think... Um, uh, yeah, so the, you know, basically, if you if you have an antibiotic and it isn't active against E. coli, it's not very much use for you if you're going to use it as empirical cover for UTIs. Yeah. I, so everything really here has to cover E. coli, and so everything that you would choose for UTI does by default almost. Yeah. So what about Klebsiella specifically? Well, Klebsiella pneumonia being the the most common culprit, I'd say. Um, but mm. there's lots of other Klebsiella. Klebsiella. Um, what, what, what's different about them from E. coli? The, the, the main thing is that they've got constitutive penicillinase. Um, so the, the E. coli uh, will be sensitive to amoxicillin, uh, say, but Klebsiella's uh, will not because they have this penicillinase that will uh, chew up uh, amoxicillin. And, and because of that, you can't use amoxicillin for Klebsiella. And this is kind of why more recent guidelines are, are kind of circumspect about using amoxicillin as a, as a default. Because if you think, I think we quoted 10 to 15% of, of UTIs are because of 
Klebsiella as well, 10 to 15% intrinsic resistance rate. And that's just intrinsic resistance. That's not talking about acquired resistance in your E. coli population or in your non-E. coli, non-Klebsiella enterobacterialis. You know, that that's a bit too much to, to use as, as upfront empirical therapy. And so most guidelines and the, and the most recent NICE guidance says, look, you can use it if you know what's sensitive. So you basically have to have the antibiogram by the time uh, you're going to use it. Uh, the way that you get around this is that you just add calabulanic acid. And so, of course, comosoclav is active against Klebsiella, uh, as well as other things like pifmacillinam and, uh, and piptaz, the tazobactam, is also um, active against this penicillinase. And pifmacillinam is just intrinsically resistant to the penicillinase. So, yeah. so, so moving on from Klebsiella, because I think that there's some other small print stuff there, but I don't think it's worth. We want to look at the chart. You want to look at anything yeah. else? Um, so, Proteus was the one that we said was the third big issue. Um, any problems with that? Um, uh, a little bit. So, again, with the uh, Proteus vulgaris and Proteus pinerae. So, these are not the the main event Proteuses. Uh, so I think yeah. Proteus mirabilis would be uh, the the commonest organism. Uh, but Volgaris and Penarii are intrinsically resistant to amoxicillin too. Mm. Um, and then in terms of Timocillin, it's only Proteus mirabilis, which it is active against. But that's, of course, most Proteus that are infecting um, uh, humans. So uh, it would still be kind of broadly uh, useful in that situation. Nitroantone, interestingly, is not active against Proteus mirabilis, but is active against all the others. Oh. So that's a kind of a, a kind of a niche little sort of tidbit uh, to know about nitroantone that if you've got a P. mirabilis uh, infection, that you can't use it. Yeah. It's quite a common cause of particularly catheter associated UTI. So it's kind of mm, yeah, yeah. kind of interesting. Um, what about other intrabacterales? Well, the, here it gets more variable because, of course, every other intrabacterialis you've ever heard of, apart from E. coli, Klebsiella, and Proteus, is still a pretty heterogeneous group. Yeah, but I mean, your your mileage will vary with amoxicillin and pivmacillinam, and you know you wouldn't necessarily intrinsically trust other things like caninitrofurantoin uh, and trimethoprim unless you knew. It was uh, resistant, and so to your first generation cephalosporins. So you know your cephalozolin and cephalexin. You would be, um, it would be reasonable to trust your more broad spectrum choices. So your um, beta-lactams with the beta-lactamase inhibitor, um, your uh, timocillin, higher generation cephalosporins, carbapenems, astrianam. But also your, you, you know, aminoglycosides and, and quinolones and, and cotramoxazole and stuff like that. You could use that kind of upfront. Um, so pending the antibiogram. So why not just use uh, amoxicillin clavulinate, you know, clomoxiclav for all these organisms empirically? Well, Callum, uh, you uh, sound a lot like whoever designed the uh, antibiotic uh, plan for Nador South because that's exactly what we do. We basically use uh, comoxiclav for um, most infections in general, but also urinary tract infections and pyelonephritis in particular. And I hate it uh, because it's broad spectrum. 
it drives antimicrobial resistance. It, uh, it kind of promotes the formation of beta-lactamase resistance genes, both in the hospital and in the community. I think it's just a bad idea. Uh, the health security agency agree with me because they have classified beta-lactamase, the beta-lactamase inhibitors as a uh, watch antibiotic. And so we are meant to be using access antibiotics whenever we can. And so that would be things like uh, amoxicillin, nitrofurantone, trimethoprim, cotramoxazole, and gentamicin. Um, so, you know, using something like comoxiclav or, you know, higher generation cephalosporins, I just think is not justifiable um, these days. And it will take a while for everybody's microguide to catch up with that. But I think if we're going to be proper antimicrobial stewards, that we can't just keep on using this broad spectrum stuff for everything and just say that makes everything better. Yeah, it is tempting, which is why I'm suggesting it. Mm. But I think the, the the principles here, particularly for for UTIs, extremely common infection, is that we should be using antibiotics that can have the least impact elsewhere. And you know, as with any any patient with an infection, you're constantly weighing up the risks of could this be something resistant and we're not broad enough versus the harms both to that patient and to the population of using broad spectrum agents where you don't really need to. Because I could just say, well, why don't we just give everyone carbapenem? You know? True enough. You know, yeah. we'll definitely and, cover and it. When I first came down here, I was like, well, why aren't you just using Piptas for everything or carbapenem? Like, what's your t- why, why are you stopping at Comosoglav? Why aren't you going on to use the most broad spectrum thing possible? Because, you know, the you would certainly catch more resistant infections that way. So, like, if that's your justification, why are you stopping with Comox? And I think it's just people think of Comox as the as the friendly, cuddly, broad spectrum antibiotic. Do you know what I mean? Like, people don't think it does that much harm. I guess the words at the beginning of Co are usually quite good, aren't they? Cooperation. Mm. Cotramoxazole. You know. <laughs> Maybe but I, I, I just think that people um, just have the wrong idea. And, and partially it's because of, you know, what you and me discussed when we, we, we were guesting on that, that episode of Febrile, when we discussed the Scottish approach to antimicrobial stewardship, that was influenced really heavily with, by, by the Vale of Leven um, disaster and, and subsequent inquiry. And, you know, Scotland learned its lesson from it and implemented a what I now realise, having come south of the border, is a pretty strict antimicrobial stewardship program. You know, it's it's nationwide, and if you know, like if you use keftraxone or comoxiclav when it's not absolutely justified, you get wrapped over the knuckles for it. You know, and that just doesn't happen. I don't know. If um, we really yeah. do wrap people over the knuckles about it. Um, it still happens, but not perfect. But it certainly happens a lot less. So we've talked about interbacterialis. What about pseudomonas? The other thing. So I guess this is making more in catheters than, than non-catheterized patients. Yeah, maybe, and and certainly more hospital-acquired infections. You know, it's it's uh, you know love of living and drains and sort of jumping onto patients at a moment's notice. And here we run into an issue in that we've got lots of intrinsic resistances. You know, anti-pseudomonal penicillins are called such because all the other penicillins aren't particularly um, effective against uh, pseudomonas. 
you know, but you've got your Piperacillin Tazobactam, you've got your Keftazidine. So halfway through the third generation, you acquire uh, antipsychotic activity. So Keftazidine and, and fourth gens like Kefepime uh, and, th- and things like that can be used. Ertapenem, no, but other carbapenems, in particular meropenem and imapenem silostatin, yes. And then as and the monobactam, it can be used. And then when it comes to other things, um, you've got your quinolones uh, and aminoglycosides and maybe a couple of others. We'll talk about them in a sec. Um, for aminoglycosides, it's, it's worth noting that UCAST and now also CLSI have dropped the gentamicin pseudomonas aeruginosa MIC breakpoint. So now... According to those two organiz- uh, organizations, um, gentamicin doesn't work for pseudomonas. If you're wanting an anti-pseudomonal aminoglycoside, you need to use tobramycin. Or if you're in the urinary tract, you can use amicacin. Uh, and they've got sort of separate bay points for the uh, the pair of them. And the this has actually been pretty well covered in a recent episode of Breakpoints, and so I would encourage people to go and look at that, and we'll in, can in, try and include a link to it in the show notes, uh, Calm uh, about it. But basically, the when you're setting Breakpoints for a bug drug combination, there, there's a golden rule, and the golden rule is that you don't bisect the wild type population. And so if you can think of the wild type population as like a bell curve, you, you want your breakpoint to be basically the edge of the bell curve. So maybe the 99th centile or something like that. And a big issue with old breakpoints from back in the day, like before people were looking at this in a systematized fashion, is that some of the breakpoints do bisect the wild type population. For example, the gentamicin pseudomonas uh, breakpoint that everybody was using. And so UCAS looked at this and they put out a rationale document and they said, look, we can't justify this anymore. We're going to drop it. And if you want to use an amiglycoside, you're going to use topramycin uh, or amicacin. And CLSI have kind of followed suit mm. uh, on that based on some work that US cast uh, did uh, for them. And so now neither big breakpoint setting organization are recommended gentamicin for... Uh- Pseudomonas. And how does that work? Because obviously aminoglycosides are concentrated into urine, so you get much higher concentrations. Interesting, you should say, Callum, because there is a um, uh, phenomenon that people have been talking about, which is the urinary antibiogram. And people haven't really, the, the, as far as I know, the big breakpoint organizations haven't really implemented this yet. But the idea is this, because you get such heavy concentration of antibiotics in the urine, you may be able to use antibiotics which previously you had considered the organism to be resistant to purely because it gets concentrated in the urine to such a high amount that it will exceed the MIC of... Uh, of that organism. Hmm. And a great example of this is gentamicin. So gentamicin gets a concentrated to 100 times the plasma level. So if you get a plasma level of, say, 10 uh, milligrams, 10 milligrams per, per liter, yeah, you may well get a urinary a concentration of 1,000. 
Now, that is more than enough to overcome even uh, the upper ends of the wild type population as you, uh, you know, as you find it. And, and, you know, that was the reason for UCAS and CLSI dropping uh, the gentamicin MIC. But interestingly, they haven't put a gentamicin urine uh, breakpoint, and that's because they, they've been doing this thing where um, UCAS at least have been changing the dosage of the drug, um, depending on whether or not you're going into the urine or not. I'm trying to see the UTI. But they, they've not set independent urinary breakpoints for uh, for the drugs. But people have talked about it in the literature and, and published kind of ideas as to how you could go about it. But as far as I can tell, it hasn't been adopted by the, the big breakpoint setting agencies. Hmm. Yeah, there's UCAS released like a document. We're on UCAS 13, so it's, I think they started in 2010, mm. and it's basically got all the like breakpoints and so on. And I probably is the the Excel file that I open the most because I'm constantly referring to it to just get yes. an idea of like what what can I test, what is their guidance for, what dosages. It's a really amazing document. And the the thought that comes to my head there is that like you're obviously so interested in the pharmacology, I'm interested in the microbiology. Let's go on a field trip to UCAST. Mm, if only, well, it's an, it would be an interesting mini-series, wouldn't it? Because I think, certainly for microbiologists, but I also think that most infection specialists should should learn this as well. Like, learning how UCAST work is, is kind of important for learning how to use the drugs. Yeah. Because learning that bug-drug combo, I think, is a big bit of our sort of day-to-day kind of working. Um, so, yeah, so let me give you another couple of examples, Callum, with a couple of drugs which you may not have thought of as anti-pseudomonal before now. Uh, so let's take phosphomycin. No, it's not anti-pseudomonal, Jane. But is it? Callum? Is it? Well, if you can uh, can uh, uh, bring yourself to look at the latest uh, UCAS guidance document, you'll see that they have issued guidance that if the MIC is less than the ECOF then of and and the ECOF is less than 256, then you can consider using it for urinary tract sepsis, which is a step up because in the previous UCAS document, I believe they didn't make any recommendation. That's and that, that's kind of interesting because the you know the, this kind of gets into how you set a breakpoint. And again, that episode of breakpoints is they've, they've got this great mini yeah, series on, on, on breakpoints and they interview like a couple of guys from US cast and uh, somebody else works for CLSI and it's, it's very interesting. But the the way of setting breakpoints is, is basically you get some in vitro data, you then get some animal data, if possible, you get some human data and then a committee kind of basically just decides on what the breakpoint is. So, like at the at the very end, there's this sort of like human modification of of what the breakpoint is going to be, mm. and that's obviously got its advantages and disadvantages. But one of the disadvantages, I would say, is that if you've got in vitro data, you that might not be enough to to set the breakpoint. So you've you know the the example that springs to mind is like keftazidine. It, there are no staph aureus breakpoints for keftazidine. But in vitro, it does seem to work. 
it just depends on whether or not you can get that, you know, um, that concentration above the MIC at the target site. And that's always the issue is, you know, you can drop an antimicrobial onto a Petri dish and you can kill a bug, but can you do it in lung, urine, abscess? The advantage with urinary tract sepsis is that usually you've got very high concentrations of the antibiotic. And, I think that and speaks to one of, of the main issues. And with... in the case of phosphomycin, uh, that's usually true. I mean, that speaks uh, and... to one of the main issues in in bug drug combinations in general, which is that we, we are kind of reliant on organizations like UCAS and CLSI who do an amazing job. Mm. Um, but I think that we know that in vitro and in vivo do not equate. And, you know, there's sometimes things where there's there's clinical practice that's been happening for years, like gentamicin for pseudomonas, with, you know, clinical experience saying it works, or, or maybe clinical data, and then, and then we're saying, oh, in vitro doesn't work, so you can't use it, and we won't recommend, and we can't test it in the lab, which is sort of reliant you know, people are reliant on clinically. And then when you're in the local lab and you're trying to implement UCAS guidance, it becomes a bit tricky to say like, well, well what are we going to do with this? Because that's going to change. And, and like, how would you speak to clinicians and say like, well, we're not going to give you that susceptibility res- res- result anymore because we don't have guidance for how to interpret it. And we're like, well, so you're saying that we've been doing it wrong for, for 30 years. I think that's... I don't. I don't know. I. I. Um. I think that the UCAS, you know, these organisations are doing their their best to provide, like things that are, you know, correct. And I. I. But sometimes I wonder if, you know, clinically, I maybe don't. I don't really care about what's precise and exactly correct, if it works. Yeah, me neither. I'll give you another example, Cal. Um, so doxycycline, have you used it? Have you used doxycycline for UTIs? Rarely, yes. Rarely. Yeah. Um, so the those in the know with the literature will know that there are there are some advocates for use of doxycycline as a uh, as a UTI uh, agent, and that's because it's got some pretty good in vitro efficacy against E. coli and Klebsiella, which as a reminder is, is kind of most uh, UTIs. It's not particularly active against Proteus. It's got variable activity against the other Enterobacterales. But interestingly, it's got some activity against Pseudomonas. And uh, I think I've got some uh, examples down here of um, yeah, doxycycline resistance. So doxy is not normally considered to be an antipsudomonal because the MIC is is usually around about 150 and the plasma uh, MIC that you would get with it, with doxycycline is usually something like four. So like it's like way, way too low um, for it to be an effective antipsudomonal. But in the urine, because you get concentration, it's about 60% urinary excretion and 40% sort of GI tract. Um, you'll get plasma levels of about 300. Uh, sorry, urine levels of about 300. Um, and so that's like more than enough to overcome um, the uh, MIC of, of the average 
pseudomonas uh, organism. And so for that reason, you can consider doxycyclinus an anti-pseudomonal. But, Callum, good luck getting a doxycycline MIC in your local antibiogram <laughs> or pseudomonas because UCAS haven't published an MIC and therefore you can't really include it in your antibiogram. So I guess that's maybe something to, to, to think about if you're desperate. And, you know, there, there's always there's always going to be scenarios where, you know, you need to think outside the box and, and think, like, we're really stuck here, so what are we going to do? Well, true, um, but I, I guess the issue there is that you're always going to be going blind. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because you don't have the doxy mic to work with, and this is the argument for introducing, like, a urine-specific kind of antibiogram for bug drug combinations, um, you know, because you could include like a phosphomycin and a doxycycline MIC for pseudomonas and, and for other, you know, organisms uh, too. Um, safe in the knowledge that, you know, once it comes to the urine, most of them are concentrated to really, really high levels. And we've, we've got some tables in the, in the in, in, there's a table in, in the, the show note here, and, you, and you've got sort of plasma versus urine C max. Yeah, and what's going through my head there is, I don't know if I care about C max for these beta lactams because it's time over MIC that we're, we're interested in. So, um, do we have any data on that? Yeah, well, really, I just included that as a, um, uh. So the, the table that, that, that you're talking about um, is pulled almost completely from from reference three. And I, I've I've got the references here in the in the show notes here. And it was it's, it's a really brilliant paper, which includes a great table, which I have cannibalized but not copied because I didn't want to infringe on copyright, uh, about kind of urine drug levels. Um uh, and the as best as uh, what what I what I included here was the maximal concentration of plasma and urine as an indication of the ratio between these two things. So uh, you know, let let's just take amoxicillin five hundred as uh, as an example. So you've got your plasma level of between six and ten milligrams per liter. And that will correlate with a urine concentration of between 300 and 1300 milligrams per liter. And that means that, uh, you know, I can't, don't recall the amoxicillin half life. I think it was like two or three hours or something like that. Yeah, it's quite essentially, yeah. essentially, the plasma levels and the urine levels will, will kind of match kind of roughly uh, the same as each other as the the bit of the amoxicillin that is filtered into the urine is the free component. And there, and then the, uh, the bit that's in plasma that you're measuring also is the, uh, is the free component. And then it sort of gets replenished from the bound to albumin uh, uh, component. And so you sort of clear it at a fairly constant rate. And that rate is kind of related to the half-life of the um, of the drug of choice, and so really, what the what I wanted to prove with this table is the height 
that you're getting to with, so say the MIC of the organism is like two. Say it's even relatively resistant, call it four. Well, uh, how many half-lives is it going to take to drop from 1,200 to four? Do you know, you're going to have really high uh, amoxicillin levels in that urine for like a long time for lots and lots of half-lives. And the tr- the same applies for just about every drug that you go down this list. So, so what I'm thinking here is that maybe this is a slight tangent is that we use antibiotics and I think that this bit of knowledge is not well known. I maybe didn't, I kind of understood it, but maybe not as well as you just explained it. And so what happens is that we, we get familiar with antibiotics and I think, you know, you prescribe an antibiotic and you say, okay, I know how to prescribe amoxicillin because I do that all the time in my practice. 500 milligrams, three times a day, done. Mm. And then you are in another scenario and then you have to use amoxicillin on a different dose. And maybe you, you're like, amoxicillin, oh, I'm going to use amoxicillin, right? 500 milligrams, three times a day, that's what you do. And you can get away with really small doses of antibiotics when you're treating a urinary tract infection because it's concentrated so much. Mm. And what, it's so key to be like, well, what is it that you're treating with the antibiotic? And then that will determine the dose. So cephalexin is one to come back to because, you know, for a urinary tract infection, maybe 500 milligrams every 12 hours will be fine because it's super concentrated into urinary tract infection. If you're being ambitious and want to treat a bacteremia with it, one gram every six hours, you know, much higher plasma levels. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that, particularly with cephalexin, which I think we criminally underuse in the UK, particularly yeah. when we're going to rename the podcast the cephalexin fan club. <laughs> so we are um but you know like you've got your um uh i i don't think we should be running through these numbers i think we should just direct people to the show notes and they can take their pleas and also have a look at these references too um but uh for the for the beta lactams we'll just gloss over and say that you know beta lactams get concentrated in the urine to comical levels um, some of them are more heavily concentrated than others. You know, I was interested to know that cephalexin one gram, which is an oral cephalosporin, is concentrated much more uh, into the urine than cephalosporin one gram, which is IV only. So that would get um, 700 to 2,000 hmm. uh, milligrams per litre, whereas cephalexin would get between five and 10,000. So, you know, like a lot more. It depends on the PK and the PD of the drug, you know, individually. Yeah. But then uh, with your quinolones, you've got plasma levels with Cipro 500 of between two and three. So like not very high, nothing to be sniffed at, uh, but urine levels of 200. With gentamicin, we've already talked about, um, you know, uh, plasma levels of between sort of four and eight with a relatively... Uh, small, maybe five milligrams per kilogram yeah. dose, uh, but it will get plasma levels of between four and five hundred. Cotrimoxazole is is very heavily concentrated too. They they all are really. Yeah. Um, this is boring me. Sorry. Um, and I'm I in guess the one thing we should mention <laughs> is uh, enterococci. 
So the, this is the interesting bit about uh, concentration overcoming uh, resistance. And before you do anything, I think it's worth mentioning that a lot of the time entrococci are actually contaminants in urine culture, so it's not... But 100%, if they, absolutely. If they truly think they they've got endococcal infection in the urine. What can you use? Well... Yeah. Well, they're, um, they're kind of annoying, anti- you know, going back and listen to the endococcal episode, but... Antiochocca have quite a lot of intrinsic resistance to different antibiotics, and they also are fairly good at acquiring resistance. So it's one of these organisms that though it doesn't make people super sick, it, it it can sometimes be difficult to treat because there's limited options. True, uh, true. So what what can you use? Well, your number one it should be amoxicillin. Now we can do this for two reasons. One is that most Entificalis is amoxicillin sensitive. Uh, but two, even if you are uh, treating a amoxicillin resistant organism, be it uh, entificium or a uh, amoxicillin R entificalis, you can probably overcome whatever the MIC is in the urine. So you can probably still treat it uh, with uh, amoxicillin regardless of its amoxicillin sensitivity to the point where some microbiology departments have stopped reporting uh, amoxicillin sensitivity or resistance and just include a canned comment saying, you can use amoxicillin to treat this if you want, contact us if you want uh, an antibiogram or any more details. Uh, And they will will, uh, restrict that. There's a- And do you need to use higher dose or is it just amoxicillin 500? 500, three times a day will do you fine. And is yeah. that that that's that sounds very interesting. It's in the literature. I think I've included one of the links um, there. So in the the uh, in the show notes there, I've got the amoxicillin R entrococci. Yes, PubMed ID three zero seven six six zero six eight for details. Thank you, Callum, well, for not you. believing in me. No, Richie uh, Al, I didn't. I didn't write that paper. All right. Um, and then you can, of course, use, you know, Colmosoclav, Piptaz if you need to. Um, and then uh, if you are going to use a carbapenem, the best evidence is with imipenem. Um, and in fact, that's the only thing that um, UCAS issues a breakpoint for. But uh, I, I think most people think that meropenem probably uh, covers Enterococcus also. Uh, and then in terms of other agents, uh, non-beta-lactam agents, uh, ciprofloxacin has some entrococcal cover. Um, mm. Entificalis is covered by nitrofurantoin, and luckily that causes the lion's share of UTIs, but not other entrococci. Uh, there's variable cover with phosphomycin. Uh, and then you've got your kind of niche-only uh, entrococcal agent, so linezolid, vancomycin, if it's not a VRE, um, Vancomycin gets concentrated quite well into the urine. It's its main source of excretion, so you get okay. uh, good levels uh, there. And then tigacycline as well, the much maligned uh, tigacycline, but actually you can use it for uh, for urinary tract infections if you absolutely need to. Yeah. So that's that sort of chart of all the different organisms and the antibiotics and the urine drug concentrations. Um, what else do you want to talk about? I mean, I guess we could talk about the 
indications, the, the recommendations by kind of NICE and SBED and IDSA. We, we've sort of talked about them previously in our um, DCR gram negative uh, kind of episodes um, and in previous yeah, urinary tract infection episodes. Uh, I don't think so as well. I think when, this, the, when you're following the NICE and, and SBED guidance, the, the NICE guidance in particular, you, you, this episode really, if you're an infection specialist and you're running into infection where the nice guidance doesn't apply. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And what I asked at the beginning, you know, is is urinary tract infection definitely something where we can say that beta lactams are best lactams? Because it has been in some places this sort of historic thing that beta lactams aren't good for urinary tract infections and that we should be using alternate antibiotics. Um, but you've put in the show notes um, uh, a study that was looking at oral step-down post-bacteremia mm. um, in particular for urinary source and saying that actually oral beta-lactams are fine in this context. Because I often see that, you know, discussed that, you know, we can't use cephalexin or moxicillin because they don't reach uh, sufficient concentrations. But the study is suggesting that actually it's... Well, I mean, I, I, I don't really know where this came from. I mean, we, you and me have heard this, haven't you, in, in Nadosh North mm. about Keflex in, in particular. And I don't really understand the, the justification for it. And I definitely don't think it's backed up by the evidence. Yeah. Um, so the, the uh, JAMA Network Open paper that I've got here is, I think, a, a real nice paper where they compare ciprofloxacin, coltramoxazole, and um, I think it's colmosoclav for step-down therapy. So they've received, hmm, I think, something like 72 hours of uh, IV therapy for, you know, a, a gram-negative bacteremia from a UTI, from, yeah. a, from a urine source. And they compare all three. And really, there's, there's not much of a difference between them in terms of 30-day mortality. Okay. I feel like shorter is better as a field of of research and antimicrobials is constantly advancing and maybe on the horizon we'll be like actually you only needed the the three days of IV or the you know, um to get effective therapy for the bacteremia so maybe maybe the reason there's no difference is because they were already effectively treated but I think it is useful to say you know these these drugs are 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 effective in terms in terms of the duration we sort of talked about this a bit on the catheter associated UTI. But generally, so in UK, nice guidance suggests three days for a non-pregnant female, and for all our indications, seven days treatment for a UTI. And for pyelonephritis, they say seven days, although they do say seven days, days unless you're using trimethoprim. Yeah, why is that? In which case, uh, it would be fourteen days. Why is it that they recommend fourteen days for trimethoprim? I think it's because. They don't really trust trimethoprim to get the job done. And I can sort of understand their thinking because I, I don't really trust trimethoprim in pyelonephritis either. But I, I wonder if that's because of a historical um, uh, kind of eminence-based uh, opinion rather than an evidence-based opinion. Hmm. Yeah, because I feel like when I first started practicing medicine, pyelonephritis was 14 days of therapy. And now we've moved to seven and potentially we're moving to five. 
And on the Shorter is Better webpage, Brad Spellberg has summarized the evidence. There's nine RCTs comparing Shorter, saying that it's equal, equal effectiveness. Rather than saying one size fit all, when we talk about shorter therapy, you really need to make sure that you're selecting the right patients for shorter therapy. And so it's five days and review. So we used to think about antibiotics as, you know, it must be this certain amount of duration and that's it. But I think it's much better to think about antibiotics as you give the shortest duration that's suitable for that patient. So if the patient is better at five days, they don't need more antibiotics. If they're not better, they potentially do need more. Um, and the, the particular patients where you need longer is there's some sort of nidus or like, you know, point of infection. So that's things like they've got ureteric calculines or stones that, you know, organisms could be harbored in. There's some sort of plastic there. So like ureteric stents, catheter, or there's metal or there's a fistula, like colovocycle fistula. Um, other reasons are things like patient factors, so that's immunocompromised host or transplant patients, patients in hematology, oncology, um, and then other factors might be some drugs, so like things like tuberculosis or fungal things like Canada uh, usually need a bit longer therapy just because they're, I guess, lower replicating organisms is potentially part of it. Yeah, and the therapy is less effective yeah. against them too. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess I'll say, say what I do. So if I've got a bog-standard vanilla pilo, I will default to five days unless there's a reason to extend or the patient is bacteremic, hmm. in which case I will extend seven days because they're, they're then, you know, gram-negative bacteremia. Uh, again, in the shorter is better table, it's seven versus 14 uh, days. And and just to point out in the the... The same table for pyelonephritis or complicated UTI. It's five or seven days versus 10 or 14. So the shorter refers to the five to seven day period, not the, uh, there's never been a comparison of five versus seven. So we don't know uh, if if five is better or non-inferior to seven, uh, if you see what I mean. You really need to go read the studies, but I think... You know, often with with urinary tract infections, you know the main things that's causing the patient like an uncomplicated infection is their their symptoms. And mm. a lot we know actually quite a lot of urinary tract infections will resolve without any treatment. You yeah. know, so so we're looking at this from the antibiotics perspective, but from a, a you know patient perspective, actually, if you never gave them antibiotics, they may well have gotten better. And the fact that you've given them antibiotics that's not necessarily the reason why they got better. Um, and the flip side is true in the sort of more complicated end of the spectrum. So in pyelonephritis, um, we know that the sort of natural history of that is that you get a big inflammatory response. You may well continue to have fevers despite being on the right antibiotics. And that can lead to people being worried that they're not getting the right treatment, they're not getting better, and then they extend the therapy because, oh, well, they were slow to settle. Mm. But actually, if you look yeah. at the evidence, you give short duration of therapy, even though they maybe were slow to settle in terms of fevers and so on, it's no different. So, um, you know, it's, it's that differentiation between what is inflammatory response and what is actually the organism being there and causing infection and still needing antibiotics to be killing it. Yeah, true. Wow. Well, we've we've done a real deep dive there, I think, into urinary tract infection. I've certainly learned a thing or two, Jim, um, as you've, you've talked through that 
I really want to dig out the phosphomycin for Pseudomonas. Just like drop that um, bombshell in, in some sort of MTT setting in, in, in the near future. See how people react, probably negatively. Well, at least now you've got UCAST um, advice to kind of back up your uh, assertion. But there, there's trial evidence out there as well. Yeah. Uh, uh, and whatnot. So, yeah. But I mean, I guess, you know, particularly when it comes to pseudomonas, we've got so few oral options that at least it's nice to have a couple of other tools in your belt. Um, I don't know that I would, you know, if a, a GP phoned up saying, you know, I've got a patient who's got a pseudomonas UTI and I can't use a quinolone, I'm not sure it would leap to fosfomycin or doxycycline. But I, I guess if... If they couldn't come to hospital or they didn't want to and you're really stuck and you've got no other options... Patient's a farmer and they're not leaving their farm. What what do I do? Uh, you know, there's at least a couple of things that you can consider... Is the um, dose the same? Is it just a three gram oral sachet? Mm. And then once and then well, although, three days? Or do you give a higher dose? Well, if you want to give more, because it's concentration dependent killing, if you want to give a higher dose, you can just give it more frequently. Which is the thing, like, and, and particularly for, there was that recent um, uh, trial uh, for phosphomycin for oral step down of pyelonephritis or complicated UTI uh, from, I think, Brad Spellberg's uh, group as well. This is, actually, um, we're going to rename, not the Kefalexin Appreciation Society. The Brad Spellberg Appreciation Society, absolutely. Um, but I think it was, uh, the regimen was three grams every alternate day. Uh, so normally for UTI, you would give, you know, for women, you would give uh, one off, uh, assuming that would last about 72 hours because of the PK of the, Fosfomycin drug, and for men, you would basically repeat at day four, uh, and then consider the uh, the course finished. Uh, but this one for a complicated UTI was three grams on every alternate day for six days. Uh, you know, to to eke out seven. Um, uh, so yeah, I think that was uh, relatively effective. I think it was non inferior to uh, their alternative, which was ertapenem. I think. Wow. Mm. Powerful stuff. Yeah. So I mean, you know, when you're when you're dealing with UTI, you've got the potential to use some narrow spectrum agents, which will nonetheless be devastatingly effective. And as a stewardship intervention, that's worth considering. Questions, comments, suggestions, why don't you send them into idiotspodcasting at gmail.com. Have a five-star review in your pocket? Calm and I would love to have it. Please drop it in your podcast player of choice. We tweet at idiots underscore pod, and if you want to donate directly to support the show, you may now do so. Uh, there's a link in the description. But until next time, I'm Jane. I'm Calm. See you then. Bye. Bye. Now that the episode's done, we hope you learned and had lots of fun. So go forth and treat people with some of what you now know.